Have you been out birding? Outbirding with Field Guides is the new birding video series you've been hearing about. The latest episodes from Lima, Peru, Arizona, Brazil, Cape May, and the Prairie Potholes include adventure, conversations with fascinating bird people, and field pointers. Remember, even when you're at home, you can always go outbirding with Field Guides. Join the fun at outbirding.com ABA. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick. Spring is here, the first of what I would consider real migrants, the south of the ABA area migrants, are pushing into my region. I hope they're coming into yours as well. The birding, she's getting good right now at long, long last. And I know I like to talk bird news in this spot, like, you know, whatever important birding world issues that have come up that I think that you should know about, interesting studies that relate to birds. But, but birding in spring migration is, is really it right now in the birding world. It is one of the more endearing aspects of the birding community, that once the birds start moving, we sort of put everything else on the back burner for about a month. Just put a pin in it. We'll catch you later in mid-May. Thanks. Maybe early June, depending on your latitude. This is the birder's way. This is why I'm glad to work for a birding organization because they understand. I told you I would provide a link to the bird names thing on Friday, April 16th. The bird meeting is on Friday, April 16th, which is tomorrow. If you are listening to this on the day, it drops the link to registers in the show notes. It will be busy. Uh, FYI, I, I will be involved sort of tangentially as part of a, a relatively small ABA contingent. I, I Honestly, I don't know what to expect. I'll probably have more to say about it in next week's episode and maybe end of this month in birding uh, because one of the projected panelists for this month's This Month in Birding is also going to be there as well. Um, when I get an opportunity to think about it in between all the birding, obviously. It's spring after all. I know you understand. On the show this week, we're talking parrots, specifically the weird ways in which Amazon parrots in Southern California fit on the landscape despite coming from disparate parts of the subtropics. It's an interesting story of a bird that maybe birders should pay closer attention to. John McCormick of Occidental College in L.A. is here to talk with me about it after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the second week in April 2021. I'll start with a little bit of an update on the weird New York Martin I talked about last week. In the interim, birders were able to get some decent quality recordings of the bird's vocalizations and comparing the spectrogram with other prognia species seems to put it more firmly in the gray-breasted Martin camp. That is what the consensus is gathering around. So a third ABA area record and a first for New York. We have three more first records to note this week. Pennsylvania has had a very good week with a pair of southwestern species, one of which a neotropic cormorant in Lycoming County is Pennsylvania's first and a long-awaited record of a bird that has seen many, many records in the east in recent years. Also in Pennsylvania, a Scots Oriole turned up at a feeder in Lancaster County, the state's second record. Another first to note comes from Massachusetts, where the state's first great-tailed grackle was seen in Plymouth. This species is extremely rare in the eastern part of the continent, but there are a handful of exceptional records in the east, including a bird photographed in Nova Scotia and a couple from southern Ontario. And a third, and perhaps the most exciting first of the week, a white wagtail was discovered in Hampton, Virginia. This is a very rare bird on the East Coast, especially. Uh, we like to break our wagtails down to subspecies, and this one looks like a pretty clear-cut nominate alba bird which is the continental european population which perhaps would be expected in virginia 
Um, one of the cooler aspects of this whole story is that BirdCast, the Cornell group that breaks down the weather and migration patterns, predicted that the conditions over the North Atlantic were conducive for Euro vagrants. There's a big high pressure system near Iceland and Greenland that is creating really strong east winds. It's been present for a few days. And lo and behold, white wagtail in Virginia. Cool stuff. Thank you, BirdCast. That is your Rare Bird Focus this week. For all the other interesting birds seen in the ABA area recently, check out the Rare Bird Alert at aba.org slash rba every Friday. Or you can join the ABA Rare Bird Alert group in Facebook or follow us on Twitter at ABA Bird Alert. There are a few lucky places in the ABA area where parrots still fly free, even if most of them have captive origins these days. But these big, loud, flashy birds have a history and a future that is perhaps more interesting than many birders might imagine, to the extent that these feral populations give us insights into the frequently threatened wild birds in Mexico and Central America. Dr. John McCormick is the director of the Moore Lab of Zoology at Occidental College in Los Angeles. He is one of the authors of a paper that's currently in preprint about how two closely related Amazon parrots in Southern California more or less fit into this landscape together. He joins me to talk about it. Welcome, John. How are you? Thanks, Nate. I'm doing great. You know, let's go all the way back. Where did these parrots in Southern California come from? Well, there are a lot of different species, and they they come from all over, basically, in, in Latin America. But most of the species have their origins in Mexico. How do they get to Los Angeles? And how long have they been there? That's probably a, right. a better question. Yeah, exactly. So their native ranges are in Mexico. You know, Los Angeles has this sort of rich history mm-hmm. of people having aviaries full of exotic birds. I mean, this goes all the way back to the late 1800s when wealthy people from the East Coast started colonizing Southern California and Pasadena. You know, you had Andrew McNally of map-making fame who had his big mansion uh, with a huge aviary full of golden pheasants (laughs) that when he passed away and it sort of fell into disrepair, just kind of wandered out into Pasadena and Apparently, we're seen for some time there. You know, people have had parrots in Los Angeles for a long time, but uh, it really wasn't until the 1950s that people noticed sort of persisting populations of parrots in the city. And the idea is that these must have come from escaped pets, basically. Um, people either releasing birds that they didn't want to keep anymore or accidental releases. You know, this might have happened in ones and twos, and the birds found each other. Um, and there's probably also some truth to some of the some of the mass release sort of urban legends that are out there. I mean, there's the public loves these stories, and there, yeah, yeah. there really are some great ones. I mean, you've got um, 1961, uh, the Bel Air fire. And this um, was a terrible wildfire that that displaced um, many people in Bel Air. But also there are apparently people with big aviaries in Bel Air, too, that opened up the doors of their aviaries and let flocks of yellow-headed parrots go free. And so there's, it's hilarious, there's this kind of unknown photo of Richard Nixon standing on top of a roof, just with holding a hose that's just pouring onto the roof. And... Out of context, you know, it's like, what is this all about? It, it, in today's world, this would be like the ultimate memeable photo. But, um, you know, he lived in Bel Air at the time. He was a vice president, I think, at the time. And he was displaced by this fire and others were. 
Zsa Zsa Gabor, uh, for example, they, uh, unlike them, the parrots elected to remain in the wild and for years afterwards were kind of seen in the area. And so these these urban legends, I think, you know, they, they have some truth behind them. Uh, another great one is Bush Gardens. Yeah. <laughs> this was a, an amusement park that was based around seeing exotic birds and drinking free beer all while riding <laughs> sounds, on a monorail. Yeah, sounds perfect <laughs> right. <Something> for that. <laughs> Something from a Simpsons episode. Yeah. But, um, you know, I, I think it's safe to say that a few parrots escaped from that place. Yeah, parrots are are sort of unique among, you know, birds that, you know, escape into those situations because they live so long. So there's this really long opportunity for them to put down roots or aggregate from other escapes and just build over the decades a a population. Exactly. Right. They can find each other. You know, they're they're maybe not blipping out as fast yeah. as some other species might in in getting established. That, that could take us into talking a little bit about some of the results from the paper with the, the habitat and the niche analysis. Yeah, yeah. So did. your paper looked at two of these, um, two of these Amazon parrots, red-crowned and lilac-frowned. And um, they, they don't overlap. They're both from Mexico, both opposite sides of Mexico. And yet they're living sort of together in this urbanized landscape. How do they make it work without like just becoming this hybrid swarm of reddish lilacish amazon parrots right so there's there's kind of two pieces to that puzzle mm-hmm. one is the the habitat part and like how much did they really make a shift in their habitat in coming from mexico to los angeles there's been a bunch of prior studies on introduced non-native parrots um, mostly in europe and they've kind of shown a wide variety of results some parrots are in environments let's say that are pretty closely matching where they come from Mm -hmm. and then some are in places that are are not so similar what we did we we compared some variables on temperature and precipitation as well as some habitat variables like tree cover amount things like that what we found is that the parrots in los angeles the lilac crown and red crowns are in pretty different habitats almost you know really different habitats than they are in Mexico. Does it correspond at all with the sort of habitats that they find in the wild? Because, you know, lilac crowned is a West Mexico endemic, which is sort of similar to the Pacific coast of California, Southern California, I would think. Whereas, you know, red crowned is this Caribbean lowlands, rainforesty type of bird in Eastern Mexico. Yeah, it doesn't seem to. Um, Yeah, we, we looked for that in... Los Angeles and Southern California in general, but think about this in terms of Los Angeles, because you've got the San Gabriel Mountains right there. Mm-hmm. And some of the thinking beforehand was the lilac crown parrots were maybe in a little bit more of a high elevation habitat. Um, and it just turned out to, to not be the case in LA that they were segregating by habitat at mm-hmm. all. They're not in the San Gabriels much at all. I mean, there's a few records. I think there's even a nesting record of lilac crown parrots, they are just down in the city proper. And so where they are are these places that just have much less tree cover than their native range, much less rainfall. And the whole seasonality of rainfall is completely mm-hmm. different. You've got this winter rain regime 
there is a lot about where they are now that just doesn't doesn't make a lot of sense. Are any of the other behaviors similar to what you might see in wild populations, or have they pretty much? How similar are these birds? I suppose is another way of saying it to the birds that are in their wild ranges. That's a good question. I haven't had much of a chance to observe these species in their wild habitats. Mm, sure. yeah. I mean, they're doing things like flocking and feeding at large fruiting trees that mm-hmm. they find in the city and moving around opportunistically to find them. And I imagine that that is something yeah. that they're doing in their native range too. It's not like they're, you know, out on patios, um, you know, <laughs> eating garbage or something like that, right. like a pigeon, right? They, they are doing parallel things in the city. Amazon parrots are sort of famous for for interbreeding and and to be fair to them a lot of that has to do from the you know with the pet trade and the desire to get unique looking birds to sell. Um how much of that is happening in Southern California these these mixed birds maybe escaping and finding their way back into these feral populations. Right. You you're asking how much of it is happening maybe in captivity. Sure, yeah, versus the wild, yeah. Yeah, that's a really tough thing to get at. Hmm. Um we kind of address that in the paper by just sort of saying that it was probably pretty unlikely that these two species were, you know, being bred together Mm, in in places in captivity to the extent that they could then be released. And that combined with the evidence that they seem to be mating and pairing in the wild populations in the city led us to believe that most of what was happening was probably happening organically Hmm. in Los Angeles. But if I could just track back a minute to the to the ecological analysis, um, you know, this finding that they had made a huge niche switch, basically, to, to get into this new habitat is sort of in keeping with some other findings about introduced birds that found that, you know, this can happen when you have a sustained number of continuous individuals that are constantly fed into an area eventually it's basically like a numbers game eventually they're going to stick kind of like you were talking about earlier with the longevity of the parrots you got enough of them out there they're going to find a way to establish a population but then whether or not that population then leaves and expands beyond that area is actually more dictated by matching their original habitat requirements and so this really kind of matches what we see in the parrots. Like they, yeah. you know, they, they made a big switch to get there. And now they're not really expanding beyond the bounds of the city. And they're, they're sort of, you know, if you can consider Southern California, kind of a famous book by Carrie McWilliams called Southern California, an island on the land, mm-hmm. a cultural sort of island unto its right. own. You know, if you can consider it that, then the parrots are kind of marooned on this island together, right? Yeah. And and that's where the, you know, the love story kind of begins. <laughs> They're eyeing each other and, um, and, and nature begins to take its course. Then getting a little more into your question of like, okay, people have been seeing mixed species pairs of lilac crown and red crown parrots. People have been photographing birds that look like they might be hybrids. Why aren't they? said, why aren't they just kind of collapsing into a hybrid swarm? Mm-hmm. So to answer that question, we kind of had to first delve into the genetics a little bit. We had to really understand what was going on in the DNA. And to do that, we had to get some of these birds from Los Angeles in our hands. 
And that kind of gets us into the story of a parrot named Billy. Billy, before it got its name, was just a wild parrot flying around the campus of Occidental College with its flock. Now, if a dead bird is found on campus, it usually finds its way to me somehow. <laughs> I get text messages, you know, something buzzes, and there's somebody saying there's a dead bird on campus. Would you come and get it? So we get this frantic message from students saying that she was just quiet, quietly reading and studying in the library next to this big picture window, and suddenly, boom, this parrot hits the window. <laughs> and by the time anyone got there, I mean, it was, it was just stone dead um so very very sad um we named the parrot billy we don't know why uh <laughs> but when we picked this bird up we realized that it was an example of one of these hybrids oh really yeah and it was kind of the first one that, that we had and so we started to assemble by people finding dead parrots and letting us know uh -huh. and, and also through a connection with an animal rehabilitation facility it's a socal parrot run by, by Brooke Durham. They do a marvelous job rehabilitating injured parrots. Um, of course, sometimes some of them succumb to their injuries, and she's been kind enough to, to donate those to us. And so we managed to assemble a pretty decent sample size hmm. of, of modern parrots from the city, but that still kind of left the question open of like, okay, but how do you get a baseline of the genetic differences of these things in the wild? Yeah. So you can really compare, right? You know, nobody's going down to, to Mexico and, and collecting any of these parrots anymore, nor should they be. And that's where museum specimens really come right. in, you know. There are these these time portals, right? We yeah. can't go back in time, but we can look at museum specimens that were collected long ago. And that's what we did. It, it turns out in the Moore Laboratory of Zoology, we just so happened to have the the largest collection. Mexican bird specimens in the world. Very convenient. Very convenient. <laughs> so we had examples of these parrots that were collected in the 30s and 40s before the pet trade. Yeah. And we had become quite good at getting the DNA out of museum specimens. Wow. And so we did that. We sequenced a few of these. And, and by the way, when, I, when I'm saying we, um, all of our projects at the Moore Lab are, are big team efforts. And so um, James Maley, our collections manager, Played a huge role in this project. Um, several great undergrads, Devin Durad, um, Ryan Terrell, um, and, and others. Um, big group effort. We took a look at the DNA of these parrots and, um, and basically isolated all the places in the DNA that we could find where they were different. And then we could go back to the modern parrots and say, okay, we look at an individual parrot we see which mm -hmm. DNA variants it has, and we can say whether it's one kind, whether it's a red crown, whether it's a lilac crown, or whether it's something in between. And that's what we found with Billy and a few other parrots is that they were they were truly, you know, pretty mixed hybrids, not only in their appearance but in the DNA. Are you able to see this in some of the parrots that are free flying around Los Angeles now? I've done some birding in the neotropics and I find Amazon parrot identification and just parrot identification in general to be one of the most difficult aspects of birding in right. the tropics because these birds are flying over fast. They're screaming. They're, they're strong flyers. They go over really quickly. And uh, frequently all you're left with is like this big green 
bird <laughs> that's like on the horizon now. Right. Um, I imagine you can get some better looks at these birds that are more or less urbanized, but it's still pretty difficult to to differentiate some of the subtle aspects of especially hybrid birds. Yeah, very tough. And, um, you know, like you said, you're never getting a good look at these things. Usually you're looking up and, yeah. and, and not at some of the features that can be more diagnostic, like what's happening on the crown. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some really clear diagnostic features between these two species, for example, and, and they're not great field marks, but the lilac crown parrots have um, dark skin on their sear, so that piece of skin mm-hmm. that sort of covers the nostril and their eye orbit is dark, whereas on the red crown parrot, it's light. Hmm. And uh-huh. um, birds always have these misnomer names. Lilac crown parrots also have red on their crown. Yeah, red right. crown yeah, parrots also <laughs> right. Red crown parrots also have lilac crown. Uh, lilacs on the crown, but you know the amount and the color of the red on a lilac crown is this narrow band of maroon, and on the red crown is a, is a pretty big patch of cherry red. So if you get a good view, mm-hmm. you you can do it pretty consistently, but you never get a good view. That's where the community science project comes right. in the aspect of this. So we started um, a project in iNaturalist. When community science platforms where users can upload photos. I'm sure many of your listeners are well aware of it. And um, we called it the Free Flying Los Angeles Parrot Project, or FLAP. Nice. Got to have a catchy (laughs) And it basically just scoops up all of the the parrot photos that people are taking around the city. And so by doing this, James Maley was able to basically filter through these and use a system to go in and score based on several traits, which ones were more pure looking of the species and which ones were hybrids. And what was interesting about that is that um, what he was additionally able to do is look at how often, when we had a picture of two parrots together, how often was it a mixed species pair and then how often, given the frequencies of the two types, red crowns are, are much more common. It's kind of a four-to-one split in the city between red crowns and lilac crowns. How often would you expect to see mixed pairings if they were just joining each other randomly? And it turned out from these community science photos that we found that they were joining in mixed species pairs much less frequently. Huh. The guess on random, which seems to suggest that there's some sort of behavioral flocking thing going on that they're just, you know, they're they're reluctant to to hang out with the other species. So even though hybrids like Billy can occasionally form, um, they don't do it that often. And um, you know, it, it leads to some gene flow between them, but by and large, they are kind of uh remaining as fairly distinct yeah. forms in the city so it's kind of it's a bit of a nuanced story it's like the, the, the hybridization is there which is really kind of interesting and, and exciting but um but at the same time yeah they're not collapsing into into a hybrid swarm it seems at least not yet one of the things that i thought was really interesting that you pointed out was that you know maybe this los angeles population can sort of be i don't know like a fail-safe population for these birds who are both threatened 
by the pet trade, by habitat loss, by all the things that tropical birds tend to be threatened by in their native ranges. Do you think that this information that you have discovered, that the birds are more or less segregating, even when they're overlapping in on the landscape, is going to be something that is useful for conservation efforts for the wild populations? I think it's certainly useful information in the sense that it, it gives an idea and gives some data behind this this sort of fanciful um, kind of cool idea that yeah maybe we have a rescue population here mm-hmm. um, and and again the, the the conclusions you can draw from that are are a, a bit nuanced right I mean yeah in the, some sense it's like great I mean, we do have a lot of things flying around the city that are still mostly pure versions of one type or the other but another thing we did find is that even though they are mostly pure, it seemed like every single parrot we looked at, we had 22 parrots from the modern Southern California, all 22 of them had some evidence hmm. of genes from the other species, even if it was at a very, very so low level. Back in, the, back in the parrot's family tree. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so that kind of, you know, it takes you down this rabbit hole of talking about, you know, what is a hybrid? <laughs> what is a what is a pure uh, individual, and and how you might want to think about going about that if you really were to try to isolate some birds from Southern California and use them to reseed or reinvigorate flocks yeah. that that were down in Mexico. I mean, at the end of the day, I think the best thing to do here is to protect the natural populations yeah. in the wild. Right? Um, we don't we don't want to rest on our on our laurels and say, "Hey, we've got these these backup populations. Let's <laughs> let's be proactive in protecting what what we have down in Mexico." What is the uh, perspective of uh, of the birding community uh, on these on these birds? Do you think birders tend to maybe ignore them more than they should? There's a sense of that you know it's a non-native bird; it's not worth paying attention to. I can't can't it on my list, whatever. Uh, despite the fact that you know by whatever metric you want to use, Amazon parrots are pretty spectacular birds and it's got to be pretty amazing to have these things flying around regularly yeah and so right i guess it kind of depends on which segments of the birding population you're talking (laughs) about right it's not a monolith yeah right so some some people are really driven by lists and if something is not on a list um you know it tends to get ignored Mm -hmm. um but i'd say kind of especially the amateur birding community or people who are maybe just like out there to, to have fun and see birds, I'd say that the, the feeling is overwhelming positive mm-hmm. about the parrots, not to mention the fact that they obviously reach um, way beyond the birding community just yeah. to random people on the street. I mean, I was running an errand the other day, completely unrelated to birds, and stepped out of my car, and there was this fig tree that was just full of chattering squawking parrots and you know i step out of my car and there's just a car that is stopped in the middle of the parking lot with a guy who's got his window open just looking up into the tree in amazement i get out of my car a woman comes up in professional clothes she's there for like a lunch date with somebody and she just is asking anybody in earshot like what are those things up in that tree (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, people want to know what's going on with the parrots, and so they 
really provide a, a great uh, a great entree into birding, into ornithology, and, and into a lot of cool questions, I think, for the public at large. I imagine so. Is there a lot of overlap between the iNaturalist flap folks and the, uh, the general birding community? I would think that there would be, you know, if you've got nothing else to do, I mean, a lot of us have been spending the last year more or less birding near our homes. You know, it's a, it's a nice way to pay it forward, do some community science, pay attention to these interesting birds that are, that are right outside your door for many, you know, Angelinos. Exactly. And yeah, yeah, there is a decent amount of overlap. And especially, I think, since, since publicizing the, uh, the preprint, um, mm-hmm. you know, we've gotten an uptick uh, of interest from people who are getting in touch over Twitter saying, hey, you know, I found, I found some yellow-headed parrots that are actually seem to be hybridizing with, with red crowns and, huh. and some, new, some new avenues for us to, to follow up on there. So, yeah, it's been great. So if people are interested in, um, in helping out, what, what can they do? Well, one of the main things one could do is definitely get out there and take some photos of parrots. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we need to know what's going on on the ground. We are looking into uh, expanding this out a little bit. We, we also found some interesting signatures in the DNA of at least one, what we're calling a ghost parrot. In the sense that, yeah, I know, it sounds intriguing, doesn't it? Yeah, it's good marketing at least. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I thought so. Um, yeah, so uh, this is basically in, in the genome of red crown parrots. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a, a genetic group that didn't seem to map on to, to anything we had in the study. And we're speculating that this might be genetic input from hybridization with one of the other Amazona parrots. It's in Los Angeles, very likely to be yellow-headed, which really was kind of the first parrot species on the scene back in the 1950s. And so um, even though they have been dwindling in numbers through the decades and census reports places them, you know, their numbers in maybe only a couple hundred, although they could be more than that, you know, I'm really interested in what's going on with the yellow-headed parrots, how they might be interacting with the, the red crowns and the lilac crowns. Um, one of the very first documentations of red crowned parrots in the city was my predecessor in the Moore Lab curator, Bill Hardy. You know, I'm not sure why, but he was really, back in the, the 60s, really obsessed with the exotic bird species of Los Angeles. He was, <laughs> Which there are many. Ex- yeah. Exactly, and even were at that time. Um, maybe he was from the Midwest. Maybe he felt a little out of place himself in Los Angeles, <laughs> but he noted a, a very small, just a handful of red-crowned parrots in Pasadena that were hanging out with a flock of yellow-headed parrots, kind of out on the periphery mm-hmm. of the flock, but hanging out nonetheless. And, you know, it's just remarkable to think that from that sighting in 19, it might have been in the late 50s, and then it was, it was published. No, it was in the 60s, and then it got published a little later from that small handful. You know, here we are with probably more than 5,000 red-crowned parrots today. But he also made that very important observation that turned out to be key, is that they were hanging out near each other with the chance for interaction and hybridization, but maybe they were also sort of something there that was leading them to keep their distance a bit too. And that's really mm-hmm. that was really the story there in that one observation he made. And it's really, really kind of cool, that the tie-in with the Moore Lab history as well. Yeah. 
Dr. John McCormick is the director of the Moore Lab of Zoology at Occidental College. I'll have a link to that preprint we've been talking about in the show notes. So, Calberters, please pay attention to your parrots. Thank you so much for talking to me, John. Thank you, Nate. It's been great. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy what we do here, please consider supporting the podcast by joining the ABA. You get a lot more than just peace of mind. You get our magazines about birds. You get discounts to our partners like Beauty of Books and the Corner Lab of Ornithology. You can get more information about all our memberships at aba.org slash join. I want to make some shout outs to Garnet Stover of Mechanicsville, Virginia, Mark Mushkat and Susan Wayland of San Francisco, California, Andrea Fox of Caldwell, Texas, Andy Kaster of Bloomsburg, Pennsylvania, Brad Miles of Sag Harbor, New York, Joshua Malben of Brooklyn, New York, Sean Lynch of Potomac, Maryland, Jack. Dotrich of Abu Dhabi, Angela McDonald of Sherbrooke, Nova Scotia, Jessica Parrish of Tampa, Florida, Kelsey Almendrez of Los Angeles, California, Levi Simpson of Bow, Washington, Matthew Wiggins, and the Wiggins family of New Providence, Pennsylvania, Steve Bicker, and the Bicker family of Royersford, Pennsylvania, Jill Ann Hennemeyer of Grand Rapids, Michigan, and Ellen Given of Oak Park, Illinois, who writes that she is a new addict of the ABA podcast, bought a starter pair of binoculars, and was rewarded by a visit by a redheaded woodpecker on her first official day of bird watching. Congratulations, Ellen. That sounds great. Thank you all for joining the ABA and noting the podcast as a reason. I really, really appreciate it. Hey, if you enjoy this show and want to do one more thing, head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating or a review. We certainly appreciate that too. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon, who is so impressed with BirdCast that he's planning on creating a competitor that he's calling the Feather Channel. Hasn't gone any further than that, actually. Technical production is by John Lowry, who was surprised to learn that Zsa Zsa Gabor released all these parrots into Pasadena, but should have recognized it from her role in 1953's The Story of Three Lovebirds. Additional help from Greg Neese and David Hartley, who, like me, have literally no idea why Zsa Zsa Gabor is famous, except that she released parrots and had a lot of husbands, which is ironic considering parrots tend to have long-term pair bonds. It's not really a joke, only an acknowledgement that this was actually a really tough credits to come up with. You can find us online at ABA.org and on the various social medias as American Birding Association or ABA. I'm stuck here trying to make parrot puns based on Zsa Zsa Gabor films that no one has ever heard of, and it is a real, real bear. Let me try some out on you, though. The Road to Hong Kong, Three Ring Sidercus, Budgie Music Holiday. These, these don't even make sense. It's terrible. Questions, comments, and corrections can come to podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. See you next week. <laughs>